Hey everyone, welcome to Conversation Piece with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations we're already having. Special shout out to all our returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. My guest today is an actor, audiobook narrator, and adoptee advocate. She has performed voiceovers for Netflix's Girl From Nowhere, HBO's Real Sports, and Microsoft, as well as narrated over 200 audiobooks. She has collaborated with organizations such as Hate is a Virus, Adoptees for Justice, and Adoptee Bridge to elevate adoptee voices and increase adoption education. It is an honor and my privilege to welcome my friend Kira Omens to the show. Hey, Kira, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It is, as I said, an honor and privilege to have you share some of your time and wisdom here for audience members who may not know just a little bit of background context. I've been following your work for a long time, I feel like, and it was a long time before I feel like we even made a personal connection over Instagram, but um, I feel like somebody introduced me to you really early on in my journey, and it was the first time I felt like I'd saw someone that I would consider high profile doing this type of adoptee advocacy and talking about adoption in a way that I was trying to get to at that time. So for us to then become friends and to be able to hang out together out in LA, and then to come full circle to be able to have this conversation really means a lot to me. So I just wanted to share a little bit of that context. And thank you again for giving me your time today. Oh, I feel the same way. Well, I am such an admirer of your work. And you've just I mean, I feel like you've far surpassed me. I am <laughs> like, I'm serious. I, um, yeah, I feel like it, I can't remember how many years ago it was that I feel like we connected, but just all the work that you're doing in the community I, is just so impressive. It's really been crazy to watch you grow so much in the short period mm -hmm. of time that I've known you, because I think I started doing this type of work, not to the degree that I am now, but started when I was like 19 or so. Yeah. And so I feel like I've just been in it for a while. And just to meet you, watch your journey has been crazy. So <laughs> I, I'm very honored to be here talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And we'll definitely probably get into a little bit of your journey early on, because again, like you were talking about this in such a way that I was, when I started trying to reach, trying to achieve, trying to articulate in my own mind. And I feel like you were having those conversations already. And not only that, you operate in such a high profile industry. And I feel like you are, were a name and are a name that is, uh, synonymous with our community right now. And so it's really exciting to be able to hopefully dive into some of that today and to talk a little bit about what might be missing from this conversation around our community as well. Um, before we get to that, I know I introduced you a little bit, but for anybody listening who may not know who you are, do you mind sharing just a little bit more about yourself? Yes, absolutely. So I was adopted from Zhongshan, China when I was about 10 months old and then I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., and went to a predominantly white Catholic, both elementary and middle school. So I was in that environment for 10 years <laughs> and feel like that really informed a lot of the ways that I think about adoption and how coming out of the fog and just connecting with like my journey and my culture and other adoptees has been a long process. <laughs> um, and then I went to college for acting and now I am out in Los Angeles. I'm a full-time voice actor and also do TV and film when 
those jobs pop up and also work in adoptee advocacy. I also actually just joined the communications committee for the Chinese Adoptee Alliance. So I'm also really excited about that. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. How long has that been in the works? Can we talk about that? Yeah, um, not long. I interviewed for it a few weeks ago and then was it was accepted and we just had the first board meeting a few days ago and now we're I'm going to get started in that work. So I'm That's excited. very exciting. That's very exciting. It's always nice to come to like a formal position in this yes. space, um, especially for like myself just operating and just like, oh, we started a podcast and I'm like, I'm over here talking on Instagram. It's like it is formal, but it's also kind of informal. And I love to see these organizations really pushing forward and bringing people in to, you know, move beyond just adoption rhetoric and talking specifically about adoptee experiences being led by adoptees. I think that's so important and it's really exciting. So I'm very excited to have you, to see you entering into that space. Yeah, I'm super excited. Yes, very, very exciting. So you said that you started your advocacy work at 19. What came first? Were you already in the acting space? Were you like figuring your way and navigating your way through that work and you realize, oh, I'm also going to talk about my identity in this way? Or did they kind of happen synonymously? So what really launched my journey into the adoptee community was when I joined the Pacific Miss Asian American pageant. And mm. I started that when I was 19. It was my first and only pageant. I was fortunate enough to win it. And then I stopped. <laughs> but in <laughs> um, pageants, I think it's important to have a platform that you're trying to draw more attention to. And I was really interested in exploring my identity as a Chinese American transracial adoptee. And I hadn't really done so in a way that was super meaningful. I always knew mm -hmm. this about myself, but I was like, I'm the first adoptee to enter this pageant. I think that that's something that I can have a unique angle on and a unique voice to bring into this space. And so that's really what inspired me to even start looking into that. But obviously it's taken on a whole life of its own beyond pageantry <laughs> since I only did the one, but it was really cool to then win and feel like I had a level of influence to bring attention to some of the issues that our community faces and mm. will continue to. So that was where it started. Was there a specific thing that you first like learned about, about being adopted or about the adoptee community when you were going into this specifically for the pageant that you were like, oh, that just changed my whole worldview on what this means? Yes. So as I said before, I went to private Catholic school for 10 years and was very pro-adoption because mm. it had worked out for me and I have adopted brother from Korea and also a biological sister, uh, or not my biological sister, my parents' biological child. But I went into this community with this belief that adoption was such a good thing. It's always good. It's children finding families. What could be better than that? And I think that my eyes were really opened and not in a gentle way. <laughs> mm. um, I think that like, as I was starting to speak about these things and people started to realize that I had those pro-adoption beliefs that 
this was not something that they wanted to support or, and they would tell me so. And I think I was very resistant to that for a while, just because I was like, I understand that it doesn't work out for everybody, but because of my specific story, because I was found by the side of a bridge, I have no understanding of what happened to me before I was brought to first a hospital and then an orphanage. Mm. And so in my mind, if I wasn't adopted, I could have died. I could have stayed in an orphanage forever. I don't know what would have happened. So for me, because those extremes are there, adoption was such a good thing and I held it so highly. And so to learn that that wasn't the case was completely world shattering. And I think that that was really the thing that just shook me out of living in this like haze. Mm. But I I do think that that is the the biggest realization that I had moving into this space. Was there anything about, okay, so I really resonate with that because I feel like that was how I navigated life for a long time was like, okay, adoption's good, like because I Mm -hmm. had a good experience. And obviously having learned about like this dominant narrative that overshadows everything about adoption, learning that, oh, that's where my story fits in is the one that always gets airtime. The one that always gets told is this, this family made this child saved. Um, was there something that you heard in these stories that maybe didn't reflect your own experience that really made you think I have to, I want to dig in deeper because I feel like when I first came into the community, I was told something similar. Like people will not like you have a positive experience. They're going to people who don't like you because of just because of your experience. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like and it, it made it seem like there was only th- this binary of a positive and negative. There was no gray area, you know, to really think about the nuance of this experience. Um, did you was there like a specific story or was there a, just a specific light bulb moment where you were like, I have to dig into this more deeply? Yes, I think that being introduced to family preservation at all was a launching point for me, I think, because family preservation was not possible in my story. Mm. And so I think that just realizing all of the cases where it could be possible, both domestically and internationally, was a real eye-opener. And I think that I just needed to expand my worldview in that way because I wanted to be part of this community. I wanted to feel part of this space. Connecting with adoptees was the first time I felt understood in such a specific and deep way that I know a lot of adoptees experience when when connecting with other people who share these life experiences. Even though each story is so different, I feel like there's just some kind of deep understanding that we share. And so I thought to especially since I didn't really get a gentle introduction into the community. I kind of was Mm. launched into it because I decided that I wanted to be a public figure. (laughs) But I think that because I am like, I just am a Chinese American transracial adoptee. That's who I am. I knew I was going into this acting industry that I wanted to best represent my community Mm. because of what I was doing. And so I just think that there, I just felt a certain sense of responsibility that mm. to expand my worldview, learn about stories that were different than mine, so that even though I couldn't speak from personal experience, I might one day be able to pique people's interest into learning more about other people's experiences with adoption. 
I love that. And thank you for sharing that. I love one to hear you talk about your identity as a Chinese American transracial adoptee with such like conviction and thinking about you at like 1920, having the same conviction, like I'm going into this pageant, like I'm going into this community as this is really inspiring. Like I love to hear you even just re reflect on that story because I remember not thinking that about myself for a long time and not wanting to associate. And just to hear you say it like that, I'm like, man, if I just knew Kira back in the day, I would have <laughs> been so much further along in my journey just because I would have seen somebody who was like, oh, this is something I can be and that's okay. And I was over here like, that's, I don't want to be that. And I, I, I want to shun that away from me. And oh, I, I think understand. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I hope for people out there listening, you know, you can, they can feel that in the way that I'm feeling it here, especially if you're watching on YouTube. Um, and two, I think that it's such an interesting thing to think about centering ourselves in our own stories when we reclaim them, but also understanding mm -hmm. that we're a part of this larger thing. And it requires us to not necessarily know explicitly, but to have an attempted understanding of the other experiences that make up this larger fabric that we're a part of. And so the fact that you even like had that thought to like, I need to push further in this direction. So that way I can in the future approach this from a place of knowledge when I am advocating or uh, stepping into the responsibility to this community to do, I think that's really important. And I think that another very interesting thing is you found yourself in this industry wanting to go into an industry where not only are Asian women not necessarily represented very much, but adoptees probably aren't represented at all. It's particularly in the ways that we as people of the community, especially right now, are hoping to see us represented. And so can you talk a little bit about like what drove, like what was your impetus for getting into acting specifically in the first place? And when you first started to notice that lack of representation, not even from an Asian American perspective, but from an adoptee perspective. Yes. So I have always loved stories and movies. And before I wanted to act, I wanted to write. For the longest mm. time, I wanted to write books. And then I moved in the direction of, well, maybe I'll direct movies or just I want to be involved in a storytelling field in some capacity. And I joined my freshman year acting class in high school and had just the most amazing teacher. And before that point, in my private Catholic elementary and middle school, I was the kind of kid who did not speak in class. I did not have many friends. I was really quiet. Mm. And so theater was such a safe space for me to start to have a voice or feel like I had something to say and have some self-confidence instilled in me. And so mm. that was really what launched me into acting. As far as representation, I was far more aware of the lack of Asian American representation before adoptees. I actually feel that recently I have been thinking critically about the lack of adoptee representation, like meaningful okay. representation, not just sure. orphan tropes. But right. um, I think that when I first started acting professionally and got representation, I was only being sent out for these small bit parts like babysitter, nail technician, mm. nurse for like two or three lines. And that was all that was there. And I have definitely seen a shift in the industry with crazy rich Asians. And there's also been a lot of 
adoptee stories that have been coming out in the last few years and not just the blind side or anything like that, but with Blue Bayou and Return to Soul and these types of movies and and now Joyride is out. Um, it's just an interesting, an interesting turn. And so I feel like I have just started trying to think about my identity in that way, about what it means to be a <laughs> transracial adoptee actor, as well as an Asian American actor, and how sometimes these things my beliefs in, in both spaces kind of clashed. Like when it came to Joyride, it felt like my worlds were colliding and it was really mm. uncomfortable. But um, I think that just being able to sort through these things and find connection within the community has been really helpful. I appreciate you sharing that. Can you, if you feel comfortable and safe enough to share, talk a little bit about what made you feel uncomfortable about those two things colliding when it comes to Joyride specifically? Yes. So... That happened when I first saw the trailer. I watched the trailer. I heard this discourse about what it was about, and I was really upset. I was so mad that the idea of taking a birth search and a homeland journey and turning it into a raunchy comedy was happening. That made me so upset because I have very conflicting feelings about doing a birth search for myself or doing a homeland Mm. journey for myself. And which is was very heavily affected by the fact that I was adopted during the one child policy. Mm. And just for someone, especially people who aren't adopted, to take that and turn it into a raunchy comedy, not only made me feel like the butt of a joke or outside of it just wasn't inclusive. I felt like I was my experience and the experience of others in my community was being laughed at. Mm. was really infuriating to me. And then I started to feel upset that I was infuriated because I should be so excited that there were Asian American women and um, non, a non, there was a non-binary character that I saw. And I was like, I should be so excited that this is happening. And so it was really uncomfortable to sit in both of those things at the same time. And I'm not very good (laughs) with the duality in my life. I'm trying to be more accepting of like, these two things can be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but (laughs) so that's so hard to hard to stomach sometimes. And so it was really strange to not feel like I could just a hundred percent support this film in a way that I wanted to. And in a way that like, I want other people to as well, but because it had, all of these different facets to it. I, it was just, it was just very uncomfortable to sit in. I, yeah, I mean, I obviously talked a lot about it and I will actually share here that I was checked by someone in the community who felt like they were seeing a lot of male voices leading this conversation and mine being one of them. And when we should be looking to the to Asian American women adoptee who are female or female presenting or non-binary queer to lead the discourse around this. And I was like, you're totally right. Um, which is why I have not talked about it very much recently because I felt similarly to your un- discomfort with the way that this particular experience of our journeys was being portrayed. I thought that was very strange, a really strange choice And it made me uncomfortable because like you, like I only saw people praising the movie Mm -hmm. and I'm like, 
okay, am I supposed to compartmentalize this feeling as an adoptee in favor of like a further step of representation for our community broadly? And it felt like, it felt like in some ways I should, in some ways I shouldn't. And that was the discomfort there is because like, why are we compromising? Like what kinds of, Bianca Mabuti Lewis shared this during May was like, what kinds of integrity and storytelling do we want to invest in? And like, what kind of standards do we want to hold ourselves to when it comes to storytelling, not only for just the broader diaspora specifically, but for, or generally, but for those hidden communities within our diaspora specifically. And so it made me really feel like similar to you, just very uncomfortable and thinking about how do I continue to have this discourse? And I love the post that you made about talking about not only the one child policy, but really contextualizing the film within your own experience. I thought that was super important. And something that really upset me was seeing all of my friends and people in the community that I've made over the last three years in the broader Asian diaspora, not really like picking up on any of this. And it was very confusing. It was just, you know, very confusing, very uncomfortable. Um, And I think it really gets at the heart of our conversation today about this missing piece of the conversation around adoptee representation, specifically in media. What do you think that piece is? Why is this happening still? Can you give a little bit of a contextualization to that? Why that's happening and why you specifically think it's continuing to happen at the moment? So I touched on this a little bit in the column that I wrote for your newsletter, but Mm. I think from a very young age, we see the orphan trope in movies, in children's movies, in Disney movies all the time. And that's not the same experience, but it is characters that reflect our life experience in some way where they don't know their first parents. And because of that, they can go on this big grand adventure Mm-hmm. And now with Joyride, which is specifically a transracial adoptee experience, that's not an orphan trope, but it is adoption in media. And like almost there's almost like a found family element to it with her friends. And I think that it's just interesting to see how like adoption and first families and adoptive families are portrayed because it's been portrayed so much and in like a subliminal way like in a way Mm. that sometimes you don't even think about you don't even think about certain characters being orphans but because it's portrayed so often and like you were talking about earlier the dominant narrative of it being so overwhelmingly positive and such a good thing that even professional writers like screenwriters at the highest level aren't investing their due diligence to do the research into the adoption community, into adoptees lived experiences, because I feel like it's just so, it's like simultaneously to me, so oversaturated, but at the same time, not specific. And so when adoption is in movies, I think that people just think that they understand it because they've Mm. been seeing it from such a young age. And so they don't think about the nuances and the complexity of having that lived experience. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And I've normally asked this next two questions in the framing of like, how do we as adoptees make sure that we're doing this? And how do people outside of the adoption community make sure that they're paying attention to this missing piece? But I'm going to change it a little bit. And I'm going to ask you, because you operate in this industry, and I feel like you started to elaborate on it a little bit, how do people within the film and media industry 
make sure that they start to address this particular piece within the 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 work the art that they're creating i believe that it starts with truly investing time and resources into speaking and consulting with other adoptees or putting adoptees in meaningful positions in a film or in the story development process and to me that doesn't just mean consulting with a few adoptee friends that mm. means really investing time in the community that you're representing like in re intentions regardless when a film is being shown to this number of people i truly believe you have a responsibility to try your best to integrate yourself into the community and understand what that community needs and understand a vast array of experiences even if you're just telling one adoptee's story because of cultivation theory because of all of these impacts that media has on the public's understanding of not just adoption, but anything that you have a responsibility to understand that community that you're trying to represent. And especially for marginalized filmmakers who understand that experience mm. firsthand, I just hope and want to encourage them to not try to do that to anyone else in any capacity. I love it. And I think that, you know, it just speaks to, like you said before, the fact that these tropes have been so ingrained into the stories that have been told for so long. And like the original versions of like Disney films where it's like an animal that becomes orphaned and, you mm -hmm. know, like a Simba or a Bambi or something like that. And we it's like it's like it's cute in a way. Like, I don't know. I was traumatized by Bambi. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, by, and by Lion King, like just these, the, you, there, there's trauma there that's being laid in by by what's happening on screen. But because they're animals and talking animals, it's like okay, we can we can move past it. It's like and it's fine. He becomes the king. They become they 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 they're okay in the end. And I feel like you know we have to be pushing back on that. And it's so difficult because there is literally, I guess, at one century's worth of media and and narrative that we have to try to dig our way out from underneath. And I appreciate the context of like marginalized uh, directors and filmmakers and people who work and, and executives who also have to just be thinking about this because they have that lived experience of what it means to be pushed to the edge and have to like claw your way back to, to center um, to understand that, you know, usually there are intersectional layers of identities that we also have to be mindful of, whether it be, part of the queer community or whether we're disabled or have a neuro neuro ability, like whatever that might be, you know, being adopted. Like there are different layers of story that we need to be thinking about because it's easy to say, Oh, I can pull this here and incorporate it into my story. And it's fine because they're still Asian or it's right. fine because this, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I just think that, you know, it's like what you say, adoptee is an identity. It's not a plot device. It's not, a political argument like it's we're human beings we have our own complex feelings about our experiences and our it's not adoption is not a monolith and right. so i just think that it's so important that storytellers when representing characters that are like us that they understand that on a deeper level and not just the narrative that they've been fed whether they have adoptee friends or an adoptee in their family or just however their lives are affected by adoption, there is so much more to it than 
the narrative that is being told. It really is. And I feel like you could say that with any community. Like mm-hmm. we have such generalized viewpoints about everyone. It's like, oh, well, you're white. Well, you're this. Oh, you're disabled. Well, then you're this. And it's like, well, hold on a second. There's so many lived experiences within even just that one subgroup, not to mention all of the intersectional identities that that person might carry. And then all of the communities that they intersect with because of those identities. And when we can move away from generality and start thinking about specifically and being able to name specifically what it is we're talking about, who we're advocating for, what we're fighting for, you know, we can actually move forward in a way that is not just the illusion of progress, but actually takes tangible steps in the way that we want to towards equity, towards inclusivity, towards belonging, whatever it might be that we're trying to achieve at the moment. Freedom, I guess I'll call it. Uh, Freedom for all of us who have been pushed to the margins for so long. And so, yeah, I think that's super, super important. And for people who, like myself, well, I don't know. I don't know if podcasting is considered media, but um, for people like... It's media. For people who who (laughs) sit outside of this particular industry, I guess it'd probably be like consumers, really. And it can be adoptees. It can be anyone. How do we make sure that we are addressing this missing piece of representation when it comes to adoptees, when it comes to other marginalized identities that we want to make sure we're being mindful of? How do we help influence that um, for the industry itself? I truly believe that the first step to so many things, this included, is education. And that's just self-education, listening to these podcasts, listening to other people speak in all these interviews and all these, there's so many adoptees who are speaking out about these kinds of things. And so I think that just engaging those voices, amplifying them, and then if you have something to say, sharing your own and making sure that these studios and these executives know that the adoption, like the adoptee community is here and vocal and ready and willing to contribute to this conversation. And it's been a long time coming. It is long past time for us to reclaim our own stories and have a level of ownership over them that I feel like we have not before. And like, like I said, we're here, we're ready to talk about them. We're ready to engage with them. I would much, much rather help inform specifics of a story development than have to combat harm that a one-dimensional portrayal Mm. might bring. I love that. Like, if we can get ahead of this, we don't have to have this conversation. You know, we can be having different conversations. Again, that move us forward instead of moving us just laterally across the board. Like, let's move in a forward direction. I really appreciate you sharing that. I feel like education has been a piece that we've been talking about a lot in my recent interviews um, because it is so important to just be like willing to step in and engage with that yourself. And then also something that made me think of, and another thing that we've been talking about a lot is you talked about when you went, you found theater, you found like a safe space to finally like be yourself and you had a great teacher and you had, you know, this, this, this environment for you to really live into who you are. And I feel like studios right now have this opportunity to create that, for us, for other marginalized communities, because when we have those safe spaces to not only like find the voice, but then evolve the safe space into a brave space where we're like, okay, we can become owners and authors of our own stories. And instead of being like, instead of safety and thinking of it like in a passive way of just like learning and understanding and and, and unpacking and doing whatever you have to do self-wise, 
to get to that point of bravery where you can step into what it is that you want to talk about, what you want to advocate for when you have something to say and you're ready to share it. It's because you've not only been able to cultivate within safety, you've also been given the opportunity to be brave. And so I feel like I appreciate you sharing that. I'm just thinking about your story and how it's really indicative of what of the power that can be given to us to create and tell these stories, to get out ahead of harm and to mitigate it, you know, as much as possible. So that way, when we move forward and we create the next story, we tell the next story, we're not just replicating harm. We've actually dismantled it and we are maybe addressing a new harm or doing something differently in order to provide representation for whatever missing hidden community that we need to be doing. So, I want to thank you for sharing so much wisdom and knowledge from your own lived experience, from your experience navigating and working within this particular industry where we are missing a lot more often than not. And I appreciate you doing the emotional, the intellectual labor of sharing this with us. Who are you learning from right now? Who are you gaining new perspective from as you move through your own journey? Well, you all the time. (laughs) Um, I love reading your work. I love listening to your podcast interviews. I mean, everyone that you have interviewed for this podcast, I have learned so much from. But currently, I am reading Nicole Chung's memoir and just absolutely loving and resonating with her words. And so I would say that that is the primary person that when Mm. I think of someone, Nicole Chung is right there for me. She is, she's amazing. A Living Remedy is amazing. Nicole, I know I asked you to come on the show back in May, but whenever you have time, I would love to have a conversation with you. But she is, she's wonderful. A wonderful person and an incredibly gifted writer. And yeah, I I don't, it's hard to even like articulate how it resonates with me as an adoptee when I feel like the stuff that I'm resonating with most has nothing to do with adoption in this novel, specifically this one. I see that. I think it's so interesting. So, oh, yes. Good, good call. Good call on that. <laughs> also, thank you for saying that about me. Um, I feel like people might think that I load that question up for them to be like, well, I'm learning from you. And oh, I'm no. Like, <laughs> no, not at all. I just, I mean, like, oh. <laughs> I mean, like you said, we're friends and like we're connected in this space, but also just in general socially. But I just really admire your work as an advocate and just appreciate you as a person and am just very grateful to have you in my life. I really appreciate that. I am grateful and privileged and honored to have you in my life. Again, I can think back to like when I first started following you and being like, this person is so far out of in another universe right now from where I want to be or from where I am currently. And like if I could ever meet this person, that would be amazing. And to think that we would become friends is so it's a it's a foreign thought to that younger Patrick um, who is first coming across your work. So to that young person, keep going. You will become friends with some of these amazing people who operate in our community, and you'll be able to do great work together. We've been fortunate enough and privileged enough to work together on a few things, and I think we have some other things coming up in the pipeline. I don't know if we do or not, but I think we do. So um, very exciting and very, again, very privileged and honored to be able to be friends with you, to have you on the show, to have you share this wisdom and knowledge. Before we go, last question. How do we, how do, how does this community, how does this audience support you specifically as we go forward? 
you can connect with me on social media. I my username is yeah. at Kira Omens at on most platforms. And I just love hearing from adoptees. I love engaging with the community. I really appreciate these discussions and however we can amplify each other's voices and uplift each other's work, I want to engage in. Amazing. Well, folks, you know that you can find all of those ways to connect with Kira down in the show notes. Again, Kira, thank you so, so much for your time, for your energy, for your effort, and all of the advocacy work that you do for our community and for doing all of the work that you do separate from this in the film and acting and voiceover industry. Love to watch all of the things that you do. Um, Very excited to one day see you on the big screen representing our community in an amazing way because I know it's going to happen at some point. Or even be behind the camera, write it, direct it, do all of those things. And I cannot wait for us to support you as you do those things. So thank you so much for being here uh, to give us this little touchstone on the way to these next big milestones. Thank you so much. The feeling is very, very mutual. I appreciate it. Um, Again, everyone, find those things down in the show notes. You can connect with Kira in all those different ways. And you can see that there. You can connect with us on Instagram at conversation pod piece. And if you do feel so inclined to leave a rating or review on whatever player that you're currently listening or watching this on, we would greatly appreciate it. Lastly, if you are interested in supporting the show in the future in any way, hop in our DMS or visit our website, conversationpiecepod.com. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong, and this has been conversation piece. Thanks Kira. 